The first scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and you will find this on page 955 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And we continue our reading this morning in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 4, 14 to 16, and you will find this in your pew Bibles on page 11. 86. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning. My name is Nick. I'm the assistant minister here, and I hope you have been having a very blessed Thanksgiving weekend and have plenty of reasons to be grateful. I am so grateful to be here with you this morning. We are on this journey together of talking about the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, which is this ancient declaration of the church's faith. It, it's a Cole's note of Cole's notes of what the church believes, and really it's a litany of things that we can be thankful for, grateful to God for. Every statement in this creed is an expression of God's goodness and love to us. And so I just want to remind you that when we started this creed three weeks ago, Phil, our senior minister, challenged you to memorize this creed. And so this Thanksgiving weekend, as we are sharing things that we're grateful for, I want to reiterate that challenge to you. Memorize this creed. It's not, it's not hard. And as you internalize it, I think you'll find that gratitude bubbles up within you as well. 
So you have lots of time left to do that, but I think we're going to have to find a way to see who does it and to share that together as we do it. So please do. Last week, we talked about Jesus' lordship and how that impacts everything else in our life. And this week, we begin to unpack what it is that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, how it is specifically that Jesus came among us. And we say the words that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And there's a certain quality to this line that evokes in us the notion of fairy tales. We're familiar with this narrative and this passage of scripture, and mostly we are because of Christmas. And at that time of year, we're also familiar with childhood notions of reindeer and elves, and many of us are quick to paint this line of the creed with very much the same brush. To be conceived of the Holy Spirit, well, that's a stretch of the imagination, to be sure. To be born of a virgin, well, that's simply impossible. Everything within us screams about how impossible this is. Impossible. What an impossible thing. And maybe that's where you're at this morning, and so I invite you to maybe close your eyes and take a deep breath. And to just open yourself to believing, or to at least considering this impossible thing together with us this morning. So if that's where you are, first I want you to know that you are not alone if this idea of Jesus being born of a virgin inspires questions and maybe doubts within you. As I've discussed this creed with all sorts of people, I've often heard how it's this line, strangely in particular, that raises the most questions. God the Father Almighty, sure. Jesus Christ our Lord, that's fine too. But something about anybody being born of a virgin, well, that brings out the skepticism that knowledge of science and the scientific process tells us to have about an assertion like this. Years of biology classes and everything we know about life on this planet tells us to question this statement. How can anybody be born of a virgin? Why can't I just choose to believe everything else about who Jesus was and is without having to believe this quite impossible thing? The early church, I think, helped us in our struggle with this line by not putting it first. Before we get to something like this, we first affirm that we believe in a creator God who made heaven and earth almighty. Then we name that we do believe in Jesus, that creator God's son, our Lord. And it's only after we've already made both of these statements of faith that we are asked to profess that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And I often think that if we truly believe in this creator God, an almighty being who formed the very biological realities that now make us question the virgin birth, is it really so impossible to believe that such a God could conceive a child in the womb of a virgin? If we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen savior of God, why should we not also expect that there would be something unique about his coming to us that might indicate that he is the very son of God, that should encourage us to consider that he is our Lord? Our hesitation to believe this particular impossible thing is not unique to us. 
as people coming after the Enlightenment and then the modern era, I think we're prone to believe that rationality is uniquely ours to own. But these statements, they were as difficult for people in the ancient world to understand as they are for us this morning. In our scripture reading, we heard Joseph's first response to Mary's pregnancy, that he had been betrayed, that separation was the most prudent course of action. It took an angelic intervention to convince him otherwise. This was not a man prone to believing things easily. Similarly, in Luke 1, it is actually mid-angelic revelation that Mary herself asks the question, how can this be since I am a virgin? The Bible doesn't try to avoid the reality that this is a difficult idea to wrap our minds around. The very people who raised Jesus do not easily come to believe that this is what has happened in the world, that this is what is happening in their life. So we're not alone. It was also the same way when this creed was written. There were some who knew, because of the best philosophy at the time, that the flesh was evil, that in fact everything that is physical was lesser than everything else that is not. And they so knew that if Jesus was God, that he could not have taken form in the flesh. They reasoned that if Jesus really was God, then perhaps he only appeared to be a man. Perhaps it was a convincing enough facsimile to fool his disciples, but he couldn't have actually been human, they reasoned. He couldn't have submitted himself to this mortal life. And then on the other side of the coin, there were also some who were willing to acknowledge Jesus as a person, as a real Jewish rabbi, but nothing more, simply a human teacher through and through. And they were likely to insist that his birth was quite ordinary, in fact, perhaps illegitimate, that Mary maybe had been the victim of a heinous Roman crime, but that any notions of Jesus' divine origin should be quickly dismissed and ignored. So we are not the first to find this claim of the Apostles' Creed hard to imagine, impossible at times to believe, and yet it still appears in the Creed for us today. Why does it appear when it would have been so much simpler for some in the church and many outside of the church to simply omit this line altogether? What is so important about this belief of the church that it's included in this foundational document despite all the reasonable, rational questions that it raises within us. And I think the key to that question is found in the prophecy that Matthew points back to from Isaiah 7. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is meant to be God with us. It is the truth of this claim that Jesus somehow actually is God with us that compels us to confess that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This statement that pushes us toward the doctrine that Jesus actually is both fully God and fully human. This belief that Jesus really is God is central to the Christian faith. It is Jesus' divinity which makes his triumph over death possible which makes his saving work in this world powerful, and which makes his ministry on our behalf before the Father even now a present and ongoing reality. Were Jesus born to Mary in a completely conventional and natural way, would his divinity not be more in question and not less? 
There are many in this world who were born to two human parents and have claimed to be deities themselves. And each of these have been resoundingly decried as false teachers, as cult leaders, as deluded at best and malicious at worst. These are the very claims of those who deny the conception by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was merely a person like you or me, that not only was his birth ordinary, but that in fact his life was ordinary and his death was quite ordinary. That there's no reason to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, who his followers claimed he was. The affirmation that Jesus was conceived not by the will of man, but by God's very spirit working in the world today is a claim that Jesus' life is a life worth paying attention to. That an extraordinary birth points towards an extraordinary life, and that the God who Jesus called Father also calls Jesus his own as well. So he's divine. But if it was only important to say that Jesus was God, then I'm sure each of us in this room could think of a myriad of other ways that he might have come to us. For instance, why didn't Jesus just descend on a cloud, right, and appear to us that way instead of being born to a virgin? The answer to this question is that it's not only important that Jesus is God, but it's also crucially important that Jesus is human as well. And at the time of writing the creed, it was this point, Jesus' humanity and not his divinity, which was more contentious and controversial within the church. Why would the divine choose to limit himself to the frailties of our bodies, to the sorrows of our world? So too, if our well-reasoned minds can accept the notion of a creator God, surely it's the idea that that God would become human and not the idea that that God could be born of a virgin that should be the most unreasonable to us. There is no rationality that can explain why an almighty God would lower himself to become one of us. It's an irrational action of love and grace. So then I think it is not the virgin birth that we should question so carefully, but it is the incarnation itself. Why should God come to us as a baby, born into a poor family, caused to become a refugee, homeless for much of his life, despised and rejected, crucified as a criminal? These are realities that few of us even know the part of, that none of us know the totality of, and fewer still of us choose to enter into these kinds of situations willingly, even if only as a friend and comfort to those who find themselves in them unwillingly. So if we who are already mortal have such little sympathy for those who are like us, why should God come to us as one such as Jesus? Why should God become like us at all? Again, I think the answer to this question, the key to it, remains in that prophecy of Isaiah and the name which Joseph is to give to Mary's child, Emmanuel. You see this name, God with us, it doesn't mean very much if he's not actually with us, if he's not here in the trenches experiencing our pain and our sorrows, celebrating our joys and knowing our griefs. If that's not his reality, then he's not really God with us, is he? He'd be God somewhere else and God doing his own thing and maybe God trying to be with us, 
and I don't know the Hebrew for any of those names, to really be Emmanuel, to really be God with us, to not just be a politician visiting the site of a natural disaster for the photo opportunities and not understanding the realities on the ground. God needed to become like us. God needs to not just visit our neighborhood, but to move into our neighborhood. God needs to not only hear about our troubles, but to suffer our troubles. God with us means God like us, means God for us. If Jesus were some sort of demigod, half God and half human, his troubles would be entirely unique to him. We see these troubles imagined in the myths around the world of the many children of Zeus struggling to discover where their place is between Olympus and Earth, trying to earn a spot in the pantheon that is not theirs to hold, struggling to find acceptance in communities that are not like them either. But these are not Jesus' struggles. So too, if Jesus were merely a human, God would not understand our sorrows by having lived them. There would be no God with us because Jesus would be just another one of us. And if Jesus was exclusively divine, then God is also not really with us because God would not have lived and experienced life as we have. It is because Jesus is fully God and fully human that he, we can rightly give him the name Emmanuel, God with us. And it's through the mystery of his being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, that Jesus is made uniquely this God-man, the Word of God made flesh, dwelling among us, God finally and completely here with us. And so it's out of this truth that the writer to the Hebrews encourages us to hold firmly to this faith that we profess because we don't have a high priest who is a religious elite and doesn't understand our lives. We don't have a high priest who's only ever known the heavenly places and looks down on us with compassionless judgment. Nor do we have a high priest who has no relationship with the God to whom he ministers, performing ritual actions to satiate our thirst for religious rites, but no weight behind them, no meaning to them at all. No, we have a high priest who is Jesus, the Son of God, and who has been tempted in every way, even as we are. Therefore, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and help in our time of need. It is through this person of Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, and through his ongoing ministry to the Father in heaven, that not only is God capable of sympathizing with us in our weakness and our need, but so too, we are actually given a way to understand God himself. Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, and in his life lived out before us, we are better able to understand who God is. We see in Jesus' life the character and nature of the one who created us and loves us. And in being witnesses to Christ, we are formed to become more like him. As the early church father Athanasius said, he was Bishop of Alexandria, and he said, God became man, so that man might become God. And by this he means not that we become deities able to create planets of our own, but that we become like God, united with God in character, unified with him in love to become so inseparable from our maker. 
In Jesus, God is with us. And in Jesus, God makes a way for us to truly and completely be with God as well. In the womb, Jesus, the Son of God and child of Mary, brought together the mortal and the divine in the fullness of his person. When for as long as people could remember, the only human response to God's presence could be, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden, there was a man of clean lips who chose to live among a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden, there was a man who showed the loving gaze of their heavenly father, of whom he is the very image. In his earthly ministry, Jesus the Christ brings the life of humanity and the life of God together within himself. And as these two things are first reconciled within him, they are then brought together in the world wherever it is he went. So too, in Jesus' heavenly ministry, now our high priest works cosmically to bring all of creation itself into the fullness of its purposes, that it too might be reunited with its creator. From his conception and birth, Jesus' life of bringing together the impossible, of dismantling the separation between the secular and the sacred, the spiritual and the physical, is foreshadowed, it's anticipated, This is simply who Jesus is, conceived by the Spirit, born in the flesh, fully God and fully human, making God's full presence available to us and anticipating the day when we will see a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no temple, where there will be no reason for Sunday morning worship because God himself will be fully present everywhere and everything will be fully present to God as well. We anticipate that in that world, the image of Christ, human and God united as one, will now be made visible in all of creation as human and God are united in every way and in every place. This is Christ's reconciling work and it begins at his conception. It begins at his birth simply in who he is and how he comes to us. In being born as one of us that we also might become like him, that we may become one with him and he with us, that creator and creation at last might be fully at peace. Friends, the Apostles' Creed is full of reasons for you to be grateful. Grateful to a God who created us. Grateful to a Savior who rescued us. And today, I hope that you've considered how these first words, which reveal the means by which we were rescued, that he came to us, that he became like us, that he was and is God with us, how you can be grateful for these things too. As you continue to consider the creed through this week ahead, as I hope you try to memorize this creed in the week ahead, I also want you to consider the ways that Jesus is making you to be one with him, is ministering to you the very presence of God and bringing you more deeply into that communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Allow yourself to be filled with gratitude for this divine mystery of our God made flesh. And allow that gratitude to inspire you to realize the ways that the Son of God shares with you that divine work of reconciling all things, things in heaven and things on earth, all for his kingdom's sake. Amen. Would you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, in gratitude, we lift our hearts to you. Grateful that you did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but you humbled yourself, taking the very form of the servant. That you, who are by very nature God, became man. Fully God, fully man. God with us. God like us. God for us. Jesus, we pray that you would continue to be with us in the week ahead. That you would open our eyes and our mind to appreciate the ways that you continue to minister to us as a fully God and fully human person. How you understand our sorrows, how you sit with us in our suffering, how you are the first to cheer us on and celebrate us in all good things. Cause us to be a grateful people, grateful even for this very beginning, this first hint of the kind of reconciliation you long for us and you long for this whole world. Amen.